Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com, which allows you to receive my posts in your inbox. Today's interview guest is Sid Lowe, the terrific Madrid-based soccer journalist for The Guardian, ESPN, and the Spanish Football Podcast. Please note that we recorded this on Wednesday before Barcelona manager Ronald Koeman was fired on Wednesday night. Our guest now is one of the top voices on soccer in Spain. Sid Lowe writes for The Guardian. You can see him on ESPN, and he's the co-host of the Spanish Football Podcast. Sid, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Morning, Grant. How are you doing? Doing well. And there's always a lot to talk about in Spanish soccer, but we just had El Clasico. So let's talk about that to start here. Barcelona 1, Real Madrid 2. Are Barcelona's issues long-term issues in your opinion based on all the stuff we've seen about the debt being more than a billion dollars is this something that's going to go beyond this season yeah i think it is um i think the optimistic view of it from barcelona's point of view would be to kind of respond to your question by saying are the issues long-term issues yes the solutions are long-term solutions as well because of course the focus from an optimistic point of view uh, as far as Barcelona is concerned, is the the emergence of a new generation of really very talented players. Ansu Fati, Nico Gonzalez, um, obviously Gavi as well, Pedri, who of course was so good at the European Championships. And so that, I think, provides a sense that while this is a far deeper problem than simply the departure of Messi, or a far deeper problem than simply there is a financial issue here that we need to deal with, but it also means that people think, yes, but the, the process moving through this season into next and even the seasons beyond is that there is enough there in terms of raw material in terms of talent to believe that they find a way through but there's absolutely no doubt that Barcelona's problems are very significant there was always likely to be a period post Messi that was problematic but I think what we have seen particularly with the changeover of president and now having a new president John Laporta who of course has um, both the honesty and also the vested interest in explaining quite how bad the situation is, is that this is much more than just a transitional period from arguably the greatest player they've ever ever had to something else. It's about the, the financial crisis, a club that's technically bankrupt. It's about the redevelopment of the stadium and the cost of that and finding a way through. And so this is why when in the summer, the focus on keeping Messi was, of course, about La Liga's, effectively La Liga's financial play, fair play rules. And that was about getting underneath the bar for an immediate solution in terms of right now, can we renew this guy? But of course, it's beyond that because no, you can't, but also you can't because the overall picture is so desperate. How many years have you been in Spain, by the way? Too many. Uh, um, <laughs> I came in 2001, so it's 20 years now and, and covering Spanish football for since the previous season because when I first started, I started kind of half, halfway between England and Spain, going backwards and forwards between the two places, but living here permanently since, uh, since 2001. Okay, we're going to definitely get into your story a little bit more later here, but I just wanted to give our listeners a sense of how long you've been here and where you see from like the 30,000 foot level Spanish football right now, because for so many years... Messi and Ronaldo were defining characteristics, not totally mm. defining, but defining characteristics yeah. of Spanish football. Neither one's here now, but obviously there's still football going on. There's still a lot of great players here. Like, where are you seeing in the big picture, like, what Spanish football is 
right now and in the coming years. Well, I think one of the things that made Messi and Ronaldo so unique was that longevity. Um, mm. You know, you look at the, the level and obviously Messi more so because Ronaldo was in Spain, what was it, a decade? Messi was here for 16 years. So it's, it's almost the, the same again. And it's just the, the, the consistency of performance. You know, the, the fact that we're not talking about a, a couple of guys who were the best couple of players in the world for a period, but were there for an entire generation. You know, just, you, as we said, I, I came here in 2001. So I saw for those first six, seven years, if you like, a rotation of who you might think was the best player in the world. So what, m- one year, maybe you think it's Brazilian Ronaldo. Then, well, maybe it's Zidane, maybe it's Figo, uh, Ronaldinho, certainly for a couple of seasons. And then you get these two guys and, and you know, without having any desire whatsoever to get into the argument about confronting the two of them and who's better between the two. But you get these two guys who define an entire generation. As I say, in Spain's case, uh, Messi more so because he was here so much longer. And I think that it, I think that makes us now at this juncture think, wow, it can never be the same again because we because these guys were everything or felt like they were everything for the best part of a decade. But of course, there was a period before them. There is now a period after them. There will always be other players come. I do think it's very difficult to imagine a situation in which you get that level and so focused on two individuals. Um, In fact, I think it's impossible. And we saw, I think, in the build-up this week to the Classico, this desire to create a kind of Ansu Fati Vinicius thing as if they were Messi and Ronaldo. Mm -hmm. Now, with the greatest respect to two players who I think are going to be wonderful footballers and I think already are very good footballers, get out of here. (laughs) You just, you know... (laughs) And and it it felt forced. But it felt forced because there's a need. There is a need and we all feel this need. And you could see this, for example, in the summer when it looked like Real Madrid were going to sign Kylian Mbappé and I think we all believe that he probably, they probably will next summer. And this sort of desire is like, can Barcelona please get Haaland? Because we want to recreate this. Now, I think that, as I say, that speaks of a need. But I also feel that it doesn't necessarily need to be like that for Spanish football to continue. These are still huge institutions. The nature of, well, it's, it's life, but it's, in particular, it's life in sporting terms. Cycles are short. And what was extraordinary about Messi Ronaldo was that cycle wasn't that short. And we, you know, it will come through and there will be other players. There is a much broader question, which of course speaks to how we began the podcast talking about Barcelona's problems, which is the financial difficulties that Barcelona have. And Real Madrid have to a much lesser extent. Real Madrid have managed the pandemic brilliantly, but they are not flushed with cash. That mm-hmm. is true. They, 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 they have the money. They, they have kept, um, they've kind of protected themselves through these last three years of financial difficulty, not really spent it to prepare for, uh, for the pursuit of Mbappé. And of course, they've been done, in a way, a huge favour by Paris Saint-Germain by the fact that they're now going to get him for free if they get right. him. Let's see if that happens. And that maybe en- enables them to use the 180, 190 million euros earmark for him on bringing someone else as well. But there is a reality, which is that Spanish clubs are concerned about the power of... Well, uh, it's, the president of the Spanish League, Javier Tebas, always talks about the state clubs. In other words, PSG and Man City. Right. It may well be that in four years' time we're talking about Newcastle United as being one of these as well. But there's a much broader question, which is the power of the Premier League. Mm-hmm. And from a Spanish football perspective, and I think it's important as well that we break the, if you like, the prism of it only being Madrid and Barcelona, there is a worry now that uh, an average club in the English Premier League can offer the kind of salary that no one outside of Madrid and Barcelona or maybe Atletico can offer in Spain. And so broadly speaking, there is an issue there. But Spanish football is rich in, in kind of identification with clubs. It's certainly rich in youth development. It produces very, very good players. I think it produces good storylines. And 
I think sometimes we, we have a kind of an extreme case of recency bias or even being enclosed in the moment and not being able to see that this becomes cyclical. Now, obviously, those cycles become more and more entrenched because money becomes more and more important. But I, I, so the optimistic part of me thinks, well, Spain will work through this because it continues to produce good players. The pessimistic part of me thinks this is reaching the point where this entrenched economic advantage that the Premier League has may never be broken. Except, of course, that they are largely running at debts, those clubs. So it could well be that there's some point at which that catches up with them. I mean, and this is part of why the Super League idea came about, right? Absolutely. And so I do wonder, like in Spain, there was certainly the indication that the public was not nearly as against the Super League idea as the public in England. Mm. But sometimes I felt like that was also Florentino Perez, the Real Madrid president, trying to put that out there, that the Spanish public felt that way. What's your actual sense of, of how people here felt about that? I think both of those things are true. Um, so I think it's true, of course, that, that, that Florentino as the president of what would have been the Super League um, pushed this idea that fans were disengaging with football, that there was a huge crisis, which, which of course rebounds against you when you say there's a huge crisis and, and, and then you go into the market and try and sign players <laughs> and so on. But, but you know, in fairness to Florentino, better, he, he wasn't talking about Real Madrid. He was talking about what he defines as football. Now, of course, my issue with that really is that his definition of football is a very narrow one. What he really means is clubs like us. Um, and that partly gives you the answer to the other part of your question, which is about the the way that Spanish fans in general felt. Now, I, I would suspect that Spanish fans in general didn't particularly like the idea, but there was certainly no mobilization against it, except in very few cases there wasn't this kind of furious backlash that you got in the Premier League. And also, there isn't, I think, in Spain, and and some Atletico Madrid fans won't be pleased with me for saying that, because some Atletico Madrid fans will say, well, we did actually reject this, and we did actually make our feelings felt, and we did impose a a, a caution on Atletico Madrid, who, of course, were involved and pulled out very quickly. And they were the only Spanish club of the three involved that actually had some sort of fan backlash. The reason why I think it wasn't so powerful in Spain, I think there's lots of reasons, but I think there are, there are a handful of very important ones. Number one, I think, is the fundamental structure of Spanish football and the dominance of Madrid and Barcelona. So in other words, I feel like it's kind of hardwired into the mindset of Spanish fans that a league is a super league anyway, almost. You know, the, 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 the big clubs not really caring about the other clubs or big clubs wanting to sort of take it their way is sort of just what's already happened. Even if that's only at a psychological level or even at some subconscious level, I think that's there. Um, and, so, and so when you get the response of Madrid and Barcelona fans, and you know, you'd get some that rejected this outright, but that sort of think, well, why not? It's partly because they're looking at their league and thinking, well, we're sort of above this anyway. And I think that also is then filtered through the media. Now, obviously, part of it is, as you're saying, Florentino Pérez is very powerful. And, and that means that media messages are sometimes guided by him. But I think there's a less direct or less cynical way of looking at it, which is that the media here is so dominated by Madrid and Barcelona but it's guided by the kind of principles that suit those two clubs rather than, if you like, a, a, a global view of what football is. Now, football mm-hmm. too often in Spain is taken to be those two. So if those two want it, then it's good for football. Well, hang on, let's back off and, and redefine what football is here. And I, so I think that's part of it. But it's absolutely true, yes, that the, the response to the Super League here was nowhere near as furious as in England. And now, 
partly through those kind of influences, partly through Madrid and Barcelona's continuing to cling to this idea, even if in, it's likely to be in a different form, I think means you actually now get some people who are pushing for this. And then you get this bizarre scenario in which things that go wrong in Spain are then projected as a reason for a Super League. So a refereeing decision goes against Madrid or Barcelona. You see, this is why we need a Super League. As if there won't be any refereeing errors in a Super League. Um, I, I must confess, look, on a personal level, I've found some of the arguments completely baffling um, and, 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 and quite absurd at times. But I think it is important to understand the context within which... Uh, if you like, those reactions come. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that explanation. It's also true right now that the defending champion in La Liga and the current leader, as we speak, are not Real Madrid or Barcelona. Real Sociedad is leading the league right now. Atletico Madrid won the title last season. Um, Let's start with Sociedad. Like, What do you think about Real Sociedad and, and, and whether this might be sustainable and... How good are they? How, how good is Alexander Isak? I, like, mm. I, have, I have questions. Yeah, they're, 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 a, they're a lovely team to watch. Um, this season, they're a team that I think are, are playing with a variety that they didn't have in previous years. And in fact, in part, that variety is that they're not quite as lovely to watch sometimes. They've yeah. discovered a, a defensive solidity. They're, they're not this sort of... Um, they were a nice combination, I think, between a, a technical team, a possession-based team, and a team that they would then run at you, that would then open mm-hmm. the pitch out and really go for you. And they had, that, had a nice combination there. Um, I was writing about them a, a week or so ago, and it occurred to me that Real Sociedad are everything you wish your team was. A team uh-huh. that's close to its community. A team that has done uh, a club rather than just a team that's done really good work in redeveloping a stadium that was a disaster. Got rid of the athletics track, understood that they needed to bring the fans physically, uh, quite literally closer to the players. A club that brings through huge amounts of youth team players. The only club in Spain whose B team is currently playing in Spain's national second division. You know, that's how good their youth development is. A club that has a former player. Uh, youth team product, former B team manager as its coach, who understands this absolutely perfectly. A club that, on top of all of that, has got Xavi Alonso as its B team manager. You know, <laughs> everywhere you look, you think, this is this is just ridiculously. Everything you do feels almost perfect. So, so to answer the question is: Is this sustainable? The model and the development and the direction they're going in is absolutely sustainable. Mm-hmm. That's not quite the same thing, though, as saying that being top of the league is sustainable. Right. I think there are some things they don't have that other clubs have. I think that there is a basic, you know, sometimes we can analyse forever, but you just go, are they as good? Probably not. But maybe, maybe. Um, they, one of the things that's been so striking about them this year is that they kept on having injuries Every time they have an injury, it feels like another kid has turned up from the B team. Another kid comes on, plays well again. And it's done with a, a naturalness, which I think possibly wouldn't be... Um, it wouldn't be possible, I think, in, in an environment in Madrid and Barcelona because of the degree of pressure. I think it's a different type of environment as well. And, you know, to add one more element in, they also happen to be based in pretty much the most beautiful city in Spain. So, I mean, you just think... You, you, know, you, you guys are taking the piss now. This is just sort of almost too good. And if they were to win the league on top of that... Uh, but I think they're a wonderful, wonderful team. And as you say, Alexander Isak... I think we sometimes forget how young he is. I think there's a grace and an elegance about the way they play um, and the way that he plays in particular. I think maybe he's a player who doesn't take as many chances as he should. Maybe he's a player that, that needs what the Spanish always describe as, as, as fang, you know, that ability to make the, to bite, to, to you know, really make it count. But they're, they're, they're a lovely club in, in, in many ways. And then Atletico, um, mm. a team that 
really impressed me down the, the stretch last season because I thought they were not going to win. No, me too. And, me too. And, yeah. and they just found a way, which I guess is sort of Diego Simeone's way. But um, what you're seeing so far this season, anything different about this team? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think in a way, and bear with me while I say something stupid, I think in a way we're seeing the the fact that they they've become victims of being a better team in part um, and I think you you see the arrival of two players in particular obviously Rodrigo de Paul and, and Antoine Griezmann who I think if you take this and a minute ago I said you know sometimes we overanalyze well I'm now going to overanalyze and sometimes it's as simple as saying are they as good well they've bought two players who are better and yet the team isn't better and I think that's partly because now Simeone has a, a, a different type of management to to apply which is how do I find a place for these players how do I find a way of making sure these guys that I've signed and I've signed them because I think they're good enough and I've signed them because I want them to improve the team I've signed them because I want this team to maybe play slightly differently but I need to find that point at which it all works and I think we've seen Griezmann this season play as a central striker just off the central striker on the right hand side on the left hand side in a genuinely midfield role not an attacking one you know genuine on the left hand side of a midfield three not in the top of the pitch and that sort of sense that we don't quite know where the pieces fit yet there's another element to this which obviously is pertinent to Griezmann which is Luis Suarez and you watch Luis Suarez play and quite often to put it bluntly you think well he's not doing anything and then of course he scores you the two goals that you really needed and so then you think well so how do I manage this how do I make this work right and there's no doubt that Luis Suarez changed Atletico Madrid last year not just because of the 21 goals he scored in La Liga but as Simeone explained and Simeone is actually much more analytical than I think people give him credit for that when you have a player like Luis Suarez you have to take the whole team closer to the area there's no point in leaving him at the top of the pitch and going to him because he's just not going to run past anyone. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you take the whole team close to the area, you are changing the entire structure of the side. And last year, I think we did see a different, different Atletico Madrid. And I think this year we're seeing another step again with that. But it's a process. And I think it's a process that's not complete yet. And so you're seeing a defensive fragility that we didn't see before. We're seeing a failure to, to start games well. And I, I wonder if that's a mental question than we did before. So, for example, uh, correct me if I'm wrong because I haven't got the stats in front of me, but I believe Atletico Madrid have been trailing seven times this season, seven different games. Now, a lot of those they've turned around. I was there at Getafe when they beat Getafe 2-1 and and it was a similar thing. Luis Suarez scored two goals. They've been 1-0 down at half-time. And after the game, Mario Hermoso said, look, we've got really good players, but we can't always assume that we'll be able to turn it around and we can't keep starting games like this. And he implied, I thought, very, very heavily Although he then denied it when, when, when actually I asked him very directly. Having won the league, is there something missing in terms of the hunger, the sense of cause, the sense of, I don't know, a, a, a collective drive towards something? And he said no. But his previous answer had been to say, you know, we lack attitude. There's something not there. We've got to work harder. We've got to know that the... But then in, in, in answering that question to me, he then said no. Because when you win something, what you really want is to do it again. But we've got to know that to do that again, it starts with the work now. And I thought there was a very heavy hint then that maybe there's a little bit of decompression post winning the title. I do love it in journalism sometimes when you ask a question and you get a response and then you essentially ask the same question again in a slightly different way. And they'll basically give you an answer that is the opposite of what they said to the previous question. You just keep asking the questions. I think I think sometimes what happens with that is that, and, and I, I suspect that this is one of those examples that they give an answer, and that the next question is the journalist making an interpretation of that answer and asking again within that through through that perspective, and then perhaps the player then realizes 
ah, what I've said leads to a conclusion that either I don't think or I didn't quite want to say because I can see how this can be problematic. So then there's a, a sort of a process of rowing back slightly from the answer, <laughs> even if the actual content of it remains basically the same. I call that the look on a face of an interviewee when you can tell they're imagining a headline. <laughs> yes, exactly. They can say, hang on, this in black and white looks really quite problematic. Yeah. Yeah. So I do want to get into your story and coming to Spain in the first place. How did that come about? Well, I, I have a, a, a not particularly normal process, I think, or not, not a normal journey into sports journalism in that it wasn't something I necessarily pursued, um, mm. albeit you know, it wasn't always an idea that was there. And in fact, I remember when I was, I don't know how old I would be, 18, maybe 19, my sister gave me a, uh, a book that was a collection of sports journalism, uh, writing on sport, and, and it was a collection of, of journalistic pieces. And because it was my birthday present, she'd signed it. And it said something like, let's face it, we all know this is what you're going to do, really. Because at that point, I was, I was doing postgraduate study into history. So let's face it, what are you pissing around with history for? We all know it's going to be, it's football that <laughs> would really do it for you. Um, Anyway, so my journey into Spain was doing, say, postgraduate research into Spanish political history, uh, mm -hmm. writing a PhD on Spanish political history, which is what brought me here to Madrid in 2001. Mm -hmm. I'd already lived a year in Spain in Oviedo in 96, 97, the typical third year of the university language degree, because my degree was Spanish language and, and history. And so I was here... Um, studying for a, for a PhD, preparing for a PhD, but already writing some Spanish football, basically mm -hmm. through chance, because it I just happened to be uh, someone who could do Spanish football at a time when the Guardian were opening up to international football. So we had James Richardson doing uh, Italy. We had Raf Honigstein doing Germany. Uh, apologies for this, but I can't remember who was doing France for us at the time. And they needed someone to do Spain. And Sean Ingle, who was working for the Guardian, who is very much the man responsible basically for for everything now in my life as, as a result of this. Um, Sean said, we, we need someone to do Spain. Sean knows me because we're mates from university. Uh, I'd written for the university paper a few times. Sean was editor of the university paper. Uh, we were in the same football team and that was a football team that involved after the game, at least one member of the team always had to write a match report. So, you know, you could write, <laughs> albeit that those match reports were normally tongue in cheek. Um, and he said, look, we, we haven't got anyone. Do you want to do a test run? Do you want to do a few weeks of columns and see how it goes? And and that was 21 years ago. Wow. Okay. And so... So, so it's totally chance. I mean, as I say, I mean, there was no... Well, not totally chance in that, you know, a lot of the building blocks were there. But it wasn't, it wasn't something I was kind of desperately pursuing. Well, I know you, you published your thesis eventually. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and I, I hadn't known about that part of your history. And I was like, holy smokes, this guy is like a, a legit academic. Um, is, was there a specific moment when you said... I am going to be a sports writer. I am not going to be an academic. I think there was, I, I think there sort of is. There sort of is and there sort of isn't. So I'm in Spain in that first year doing both, doing the, mm. the research and, and doing, doing the Spanish football column and going to games and, and doing the occasional interview and, and basically effectively being both things. And with time, the, the balance of my time is tilting more towards the journalism and, and, and away from the academia, even though I'm doing it. So much so that, of course, as, but then this is probably true of every PhD candidate there's ever been. The PhD is later and later and later and it's just not happening. And at one point, um, I get a call from the university basically saying, where's this PhD you're supposed to be writing? Because at the end of that first year, I decide, well, I don't need to go back. I could just as well do this in Spain and they accept that because it makes no real difference. All the archives, all the um, material, all the libraries are here. 
But the balance tilts. Eventually, I basically have a six-month period to say, you've got to write this now. Or you can, you know, you're not getting your PhD. And at that point, I'd gone far enough down the journalism route that I was close to just saying, I'm not going to bother. But I decided I invested enough time in this that I wanted to finish it, if only for my own satisfaction. And so the balance was tilting for a while. But then the thing that really goes, boom, it's gone, of course, is the arrival of David Beckham. Um, mm-hmm. And as you know, because you, 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 you were sort of around Madrid a bit at the time, that was in media terms, just gigantic. And for Mm. me, it wasn't just gigantic in terms of the volume, although, of course, that was the fundamental thing. For me, what really made David Beckham's arrival here um, significant was that it was a lesson. I was suddenly put on this kind of accelerated course of of how to be a journalist. Now, I've been writing stuff, and I can write, or at least I'd like to think I can write, and and I was talking to people, and I was occasionally doing things for magazines, and I was doing this um, Guardian column and so on, and and doing the occasional interview. But Beckham coming meant, okay, now you learn how to actually do this in terms of the daily grind, in terms of the returning things around, in terms of things like management of a mix zone, management of quotes, management of of how you hold this to wait for that day, and, and, and so on. And, of course, because what happens is Beckham arrives, and with Beckham, lots of journalists arrive too. And so you get a guy from basically all of the British papers. So I'm one of those that's, I'm already here. So the Guardian, who I'm already working for, and the Telegraph at the time as well, say, right, well, can you cover Beckham for us? And so I'm now doing the daily news round. But I've also got the guy from the Mail turns up, and the guy from the Sun, and from the Mirror, and from the Times. And they all turn up from an English perspective. And I learn from them. I mean, it genuinely is, it's an apprenticeship. And I've said this lots and lots of times, in particular to, to Simon Cass, who was with the, the Mail at the time, to Eric Beecham, who was with The Sun at the time, that yeah, they were my teachers because I wasn't really a journalist and I certainly wasn't trained as a journalist. And, and so that was, that was the moment that this is, right, this is definitive now. And of course, I've been incredibly lucky along this route because you get Beckham turn up. Then, of course, you get Barcelona winning. You've got Real Madrid winning European Cup just before Beckham turns up. Then you get Beckham turning up. The whole Galacticos project with everything that that means that people are interested in Spanish football, even if the project itself kind of failed towards the end. Then you get Barcelona become the best team in Europe. Then you get Spain win the European Championships. Then you get Spain win the World Cup. Then you get Ronaldo. Then you get Messi. And you get this, it's felt like this is kind of unstoppable tidal wave over the last 15 years of, of, of it just keeps getting bigger and there's no way this goes back now. And this brings us, I suppose, a bit to your question at the very start of this. This now feels to me like the first time in this, in this process for me, in this probably 13, 14 year process, because obviously the first two or three years are slightly different, where that tidal wave is receding now. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe not entirely because I don't think it ever will be entirely because of course the ground that you've, that you've gained doesn't go away. Um, but that's fundamentally kind of how it happened. A series of being basically incredibly fortunate. I mean, I, I'm fundamentally a lucky man. It's an amazing story and yours is an amazing story. I want to wrap up with a very, very serious question here about your mug collection. Uh, <laughs> so how many do you have? Is it Spanish clubs? And and also, too, just so you know, the U.S. men's coach recently revealed that he collects Starbucks mugs from every location he goes to, including when he said this in Panama last month. Um, and I didn't know that people collected Starbucks mugs or that they even existed, yeah. but now I'm paying attention to that. Tell me about your mug collection. Well, I'd like to think that if, if he is traveling around the world, he surely it would be much better, rather than Starbucks ones, to collect the mugs of the grounds that he's at. You know, if, <laughs> yes. if the US men's national team goes and plays, you know, at, at Panama, buy a Panama national team mug, which, by the way, I have one on my desk right here. Um, <laughs> I should, I should start with the, um, I don't know if this is the excuse or the apology. Uh, I think it's possibly an excuse. 
it's it's my dad's mug collection. He's the one that's really sad, not me. But he's been collecting mugs for, I, I honestly don't know how long. But of course, what happens is that the whole family, because it's me, two older brothers and a younger sister, we are now kind of embarked upon this mug quest with him. And our friends are embarked upon this mug quest with him. So for example, I've got one here, which is, uh, I think this is a Mexican or a Chilean team, which, uh, which Pete Jensen, a friend of mine, bought back for me. And, and mates now know that if they go to the ground to bring a mug for my dad, and my dad has now this policy where if people give him a mug, he gives them a mug. So for many okay. years, my dad's a Corel Alexandra fan. If you gave him a mug, he would give you a Corel Alexandra mug. Now, for obvious reasons, after the, 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 the horrific stories that came out of Crew, my dad has effectively renounced Corel Alexandra now. So he now gives people either a Real Oviedo mug, which is my team, mm-hmm. or a, a West Dinsbury mug, which is a team near, near Manchester, an amateur team near Manchester, because of a, a, a friend of mine who, who provided him with a whole load of mugs from there. And he must have... He's got all of the, um, all four divisions in England, uh, every club, and most of the teams in the conference and lots of amateur teams, all the teams in Scotland, I think, except for four or five. We were in Edinburgh this summer, and there were a few detours to towns to get mugs that were missing from the collection. He says it's cheating. You're not allowed to buy it online. You've got to be there. You've got to go. It's got to be done properly. Um, Loads of Spanish clubs. I don't think there's anyone in the first division we haven't got. I think in the second division, there's probably only two or three that we haven't got. There's lots of second division B and third division teams that are there. Uh, The total number must be best part of 400 400 or so, 450, 500 mugs. You're not allowed to drink out of them. And there was a tragic occurrence about seven or eight years ago, which my dad still refers to as the Great Wall Shelf Crash, in which, uh, (laughs) as its name suggests, a shelf came down and quite a lot of those mugs got ruined. Uh. But it's the story, obviously, it's like everything. You know, this is is a kind of an expression of journalism and, and actually life itself. As my dad always says, it's not sort of the mug that matters, it's the story behind it. Yes. So the, the more stupid the story, the better the mug. So, for, for example, the one I'm going to show you now, this is, this is an Algeciras mug. This is the most recent one that I got for him, which I haven't managed to provide for him in, in England yet. Nice. And, and so Algeciras playing in what's Spain's third tier, and I think, well, I'm going to get a mug because we were there in the summer, we went to see them play against Andorra. And I go into the club shop, which is really at this level, as most club shops, it's just a little office. It's the office, the ticket room, there's a mug there. I say, can I buy a mug? And we don't have any. And I can see one, but it's full of cash. And I say to the lady, I say, look, um, there's one there. Can I have it? And she says, no, no, you we're using that for the ticket money taking. You know, it's stuffed with cash. She says, I'm afraid I, I can't give you that one. Anyway, after the game, we go in to see the Alcaceras manager, who I know because he used to play for Real Oviedo, and we were in there. And this guy comes in who's, who works at the Stuck Club and he, he, he sees my son and he gives my son a, an Alcatheras water bottle. He says, as there weren't any mugs, here's a, here's a water bottle and gives it to my son and with a little Alcatheras logo on it. And I said, well, funny enough, there actually was one. It was in the office, but, you know, unfortunately it wasn't for sale. And he says, it was in what office? I said, well, the ticket office. He goes, hang on a minute. Goes off with a set of keys, comes back, brings me the mug. The mug's got a massive chip out of it, as you can see. And he says... <laughs> I, and he, and he says I, I, when we get some new ones, I'll send you a new one so you don't have to have this rubbish chip one. I said, no, 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 don't do that. The chip makes it so much the better. It's, it's all about the story. As my brother says, my old, eldest brother, who, who must be responsible for a best part of 10 or maybe 15 of my dad's Scottish mugs, and he says, you know, when you go to small clubs, Scottish, it's the immense majority of the mugs he's got have come from offices or boardrooms rather than club shops. That You know, someone somewhere has said, oh, yeah, I think I've seen some somewhere. And that's... That's the fun of it, really. It's the, as, as like everything in life, it's the journey rather than the destination that really matters. Words to live by from Sid Lowe, who writes for The Guardian. You see him on ESPN. He's also the co-host of the Spanish Football Podcast. Sid, thanks so much for coming on the show. 
Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Sid Lowe, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style features and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your support with that. See you next time. We'll be right back. 